Welcome to the Life Size City Urbanism Podcast. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. That we need action now to battle climate change is obvious, important, and pressing. That so little action is being taken all over the world is also, sadly, obvious. There is a lot of room for improvement. I spend a lot of time thinking about how we can and should also improve the narrative about climate change. It is often dark and depressing, with good reason. But if we are calling our citizens to action, then a more positive angle might be a good idea. It's basic marketing. I met Canadian author Chris Turner several years ago. I'm glad I did. Not just because we became friends, but he quite simply has had the greatest impact on how I view sustainability, environmentalism, and looking for the positive in a big quagmire of negative. He first contacted me for an interview for a book he was writing, The Leap. We met on a square in Copenhagen on a lovely summer's day and did our author interviewee thing, something routine for both of us. He gave me a copy of his previous book as thanks. Now I was all booked out at that moment, so it lay on a shelf for a couple of months until I finally picked it up opened it and read the first page. That was it. I was hooked. I consumed that book in record time. Not only was the quality of the writing exceptional, especially for a book about a traditionally sober and eh, perhaps geeky subject, but Chris's thoughts were an epiphany for me, that fighting climate change can be a positive thing. The book is called The Geography of Hope. All his books are great, but this is probably the book I've recommended most to people in my professional life. Chris is the person I know who is most well-versed in the subject of sustainability. When he came through Copenhagen recently, we sat down in my back courtyard to discuss the narrative of climate change, the underexploited potential of cities to help fight it, and how to angle things more positively. You're probably the guy I know who knows the most about uh, energy, energy transitions, climate change. Generally, for me, it's the national politicians who talk about the climate change and and what can be done nationally. We don't hear a lot about that in the cities. And, you know, I I never have anything to do with the national politicians in my work as an urban designer. First of all, is there a disconnect between the conversation and the narrative about climate change on a national and global level and the people who are living in the cities, which is most of us? Yeah, yeah, I think there is. I mean, it's not a total disconnect. When you go to, you know, conference where, you know, everyone's talking about energy transitions and climate policy and all that kind of stuff, there's always this sort of recognition, oh, you know, we, you know, it's an urban planet. The majority of humanity, for the first time ever, lives in cities. More and more of us are going to live in cities. We're going to, you know, cities are, you know, dense and efficient and good ways to allocate resources for a planet of 7 billion that, you know, needs to shrink its carbon footprint in a hurry. But it's not the, I think where the disconnect is, is when you look at the people who are really passionately committed to climate change, you know, making the energy transition happen faster, solar power, all this kind of stuff. They kind of think about cities last. So, you know, it's what is the global agreement? What are our Paris targets? Okay, now what's our national government doing about these Paris targets? And how can they how can they be doing more? And how can they put more policies in place? And one of the last things they get down to is the really important question, actually, which is how do you get around every day? How do you heat your house? How do you, you know, th- those questions, how do you, get, how does food come to you? Which, which for, you know, the vast majority of us now is, you know, in an urban environment. And, and in fact, some of the lowest hanging fruit on climate is sitting there in city. You know, if people don't have to drive, that that's a that's a huge boost to, to to the climate, and I think there's a little bit of that like in a, in a sort of virtuous sense of you know oh I you know in the same way I recycle and I you know whatever, but there's not sort of a recognition 
that actually that's where you could move the fastest. City governments can move way quicker than national governments, certainly than an international agreement. And I think that's where I find myself. I mean, I certainly started looking at the big global picture, you know, 15 years ago when I started writing about this stuff. And then what I found more and more was, oh, well, ultimately where this is going to be solved is like the built environment, walkability, um, you know, all that, you know, like the we're sitting in Copenhagen where, you know, the average carbon footprint, last I checked, it might even be more than this now, but it's 80% smaller than, than in, you know, an urban person in Canada where I live. And a huge chunk of that is just because you can, you, your day-to-day life doesn't involve, you know, cars and, and uh, you know, there's some efficiency stuff going on as well, but it's just that you, you walk here, you cycle here, everyone takes transit, no one's, no one's driving, you know, 15 kilometers to go to a, to a you know, big box supermarket. And that, that's, th- those things ultimately wind up being way more important in a lot of ways than, you know, what is our, you know, what is our carbon target? You know, how, how many uh, megatons will we have saved by, you know, we'll, we'll, sa- we'll save the megatons if we don't need them. On a global level, uh, what countries are the most interesting with policy changes that are going to have a, a long-term lasting effect uh, you yeah. know, and for all the citizens? You know, we're talking about the, the city people and everybody else, but what, what countries are sort of leading the way on policy? Yeah, well, I mean, I think obviously, you know, the Northern Europe generally is kind of the world's leading region. We're sitting in Copenhagen, which is, which is, you know, a huge inspiration for urban policy in, in a country, Denmark, that, that has been a pace setter in terms of, you know, energy transition and energy efficiency and the rest of it. Germany uh, continues, I think, just because of its size um, and continues to have very, you know, very aggressive policies as well. And, you know, the rest of Scandinavia is doing an excellent job. But the other thing you're starting to see, which is really encouraging, is some of the countries that I think people think of as the ones that we're going to, you know, are going to undo all our best deeds. So China and India doing really, really interesting stuff. Uh, are they continuing to, you know, bring new coal plants onto their grids? Yes, and that's a problem. But they're also beginning to think longer term, like we want to be, you know, part of this clean economy. We want to have, you know, lots of solar and wind and electric cars. And, and I think the other thing you're seeing in both those countries is the the much more direct, uh, there's a lot more pressure because there's much more direct impact. I mean, if you're, you know, like in, in, in Delhi right now, you know, where, where several months of the year the air is unfit to breathe, that motivates people t- to say, hey, what else could we be doing other than, you know, choke, choking ourselves to death? So I think, you know, like, there's a lot you know, it, it's it's funny. It's uh, the, there's never enough happening, but there's a lot going on. I mean, it's it's the 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 overall momentum is absolutely toward this shift happening from from you know fossil fuel dominated economy to one that where the a global energy economy where there's a much wider mix of fuel sources, where the general momentum is toward clean sources. It's the time frame really. When you get a whole bunch of people who argue about this stuff into a room, it's the the main argument is how fast and how much. It's not are we doing it or, or should we be doing it or is this what sh- we should be doing it's more like how do we get more faster mm-hmm. and and that's a, it turns out to be you know understandably a very difficult question people we didn't build political institutions to move as fast as, as we I think we need to which actually brings us back to the city thing which is that the one level of government in most countries that can actually move that quick is is the municipal government well, my question is going to be, I was very politically active when I was, you know, growing up, like right. super politically engaged. And then, I, you know, I traveled around the world and you kind of lose touch with one specific, uh, you know, country or whatever. Yeah. Um, but since I've been working in, in urban design and with cities for the past decade, I've noticed that I don't really care about the national government anymore. Like, you know, I follow what's going on, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm going, you know, it's just monster that's doing a lot of, you know, s- stuff that doesn't really impact my daily life here in Copenhagen. So in a way, is that, is that a fair 
a fair comment that you know I should <laughs> the, the national government I feel a disconnect with them right like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm more interested in our little crappy local neighborhood newspaper here in Fredericksburg and Copenhagen because that is where you see people complaining about stuff that is relevant you know to me and the politicians you know I see them on the street here you know I, yeah. I, I can ride my bike past them and oh that's the mayor or whatever right I mean there is do a lot of people do you think have this disconnect you know with the with our daily lives and the national government who doesn't really have anything to do with us um I think it depends on circumstance. I mean, certainly there's, you know, in, in, in a lot of countries, uh, Canada being one of them, the single largest constituency, When you know, if you look at what happens in a national vote, the biggest chunk of, of, of eligible voters uh, votes to not vote. You know, that's the, the you know, the 40% of, you know, the, in Canada, you win a federal election with like 38, 40% of the, of the people who voted, and there's like 40% didn't vote at all. So I think, you know, yes, there is. What I find that some of that disconnect goes the other way, and I'm thinking more, I guess, kind of on the environmental activist side, the, you know, the, you know, people who are really pushing for climate policy and talking constantly about this stuff, and they tend to want, like, they, they think the national government is the only level sometimes it seems so you, you know in, in Canada we have these raging debates about pipelines which are ultimately a proxy for you know are we going to continue to, to be a major oil and gas producer and, and continue to contribute to the problem which is a fair question and all but winds up being just this incredibly divisive political debate that goes nowhere and in the meantime you're local you know like like you're a, a good you know good hardcore green person from downtown Vancouver and or the toll bridges in, in your city just got flipped to non-toll to appease a whole bunch of suburban voters while you were too busy arguing about pipelines to to you know have your voice heard on that so i think there is that that's a disconnect i see and the other thing i think is is the Climate change in particular, like obviously the scale's enormous and, and the potential destruction's enormous, and so it makes people think, oh, we need these big, you know, it's got to be big, global, we need a global agreement, everyone needs to move all at once in one direction. And, and those things are necessary, but they're not the whole ballgame. There was an interesting thing um, the city of Berkeley, California, did this like uh you know very rigorous study of like what could we as the as the municipal government of, the, of berkeley california of, of this range of policy options these range of things we could do what would have the most impact on the overall carbon footprint emissions footprint of, of our of our city and the results came back and there was like significant chunks for things you'd expect like you know solar if we put in subsidies for solar power we'd see this much you know uh, redu- reduction in emissions. Subsidies for electric vehicles was a, was a chunk. Energy efficiency was a chunk, but by far, by far the largest chunk, like double the size of any other single step they could take, would be to put in place, like to basically to change the kind of municipal bylaws so that higher density infill development was a lot easier to do. Wow. Okay. So just so, just so that people could stop, you know, basically so that you know, a, as we're sitting here in Copenhagen in a very dense neighborhood that's also extremely livable, if all you did was mimic you know some portion of this in a place like Berkeley that's mainly not dense and you know is is sort of low rise and and residential that would be a bigger step than any of the others and it's like the last thing that you know an activist community thinks hey we should be going to you know city council meetings to push for infill development yeah. When have you ever heard someone say, you know, there's ne- that's never on the poster at the march? No, I'm sitting here thinking of like the, you know, the people the things I read on Twitter and the links mm. or whatever. Yeah, that's uh, I, I know about density and the people. My peeps talk about it because it's part of our job. But uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, there's no no protest march for uh, for density. Yeah, yeah. And and it and the other thing too is and and it's why it's sort of one it's dead easy to do in the sense that you don't need any there's no there's no technology involved. It's just it's changes in, in bylaws and legislation. Now people push back on it, but once it gets momentum. It tends to, like, the, the great thing about it is we know, you know this as a city guy, once you get that, you know, that sort of good urban density, it makes 
everything about the community better anyway. So people once it, once they you know when it happens are going to realize oh this is this is not a bitter pill to swallow to prevent you know bad things from happening. This is just making our neighborhood better. That's really interesting. Copenhagen um, and the city that I live in here in Copenhagen, Fredericksburg, they're limited. They can't grow. I mean, right, know, right. Fredericksburg is surrounded by Copenhagen. That's it's never going to get any more land ever. Right. So they're pretty good at density just because they have to be. Copenhagen also. You know, they have the ocean and they have other cities around it. So, oh, they're, they're you know, building new islands and stuff, you know, reclaiming land and whatnot. Okay, it's not reclaiming land because the land was never there. No. So it's just making land, I guess, right? But Malmo in Sweden, they, they can expand. They have, you know, they're in the countryside. Yeah. Uh, and But they've actually said, no, the, the border is the border and we're just going to build up. And uh, that's a really interesting policy they have there. Not like Calgary, where you live, <laughs> where you think when I, we were growing up... Uh, Calgary was the largest city in the world in area, like yeah. with one with one you know. Mayor. There was a single, yeah, yeah. And, and and it actually it's part of the reason why Calgary like sometimes statistically stands out because it's a, a monopolar city, as they say. It's a single, so the entire, basically, rather than you know satellite cities having separate political units, at, whenever Calgary grows, it just annexes the land around it and it becomes part. So all these places that used to be their own towns are now just part of the city of Calgary. As it turns out, like if you do that, you know, it's a city that's you know sort of thought of as much greener, like Vancouver and. Vancouver Vancouver looks really green because they only count nice little de- dense downtown core with lots of transit and bike lanes and the rest of it. Metro Vancouver, the census metropolitan area is the term that uh, Canadian statisticians use, is not significantly more dense or more you know, walkable overall. The sprawl problem that Calgary has is one that's endemic to all of North America. It's just one, I think it's, it's sitting on the prairie, it's monopolar, you can see it a lot clearer than you can if you're, you're standing in downtown Toronto or somewhere like that. Um, but it's not, it, you know, the, all these cities are facing the same cluster of problems and and we're having the same political fight over and over again which is basically you know people saying hey we need more density we got to invest in more transit we want bike lanes we want uh we want people being able to you know walk to the to the corner store all that and then this pushback though of what we actually have built which is you know cheap uh very very car friendly suburbs and those people saying we want you know we want a commute that doesn't doesn't take two hours and those two forces push against each other in, in every, certainly in every city in Canada, if not every city in North America. This sort of suburban model of growth versus, you know, the old slash new urban model of growth. I mean, even here, you know, we have 650,000 people in Copenhagen, but 2 million in the, in the you know, the right. greater Copenhagen area. And it's a Sunday today. We can play Frisbee out on the street in front of my home. But during the week, it's, you know, it's just packed with cars all heading home to the suburbs as the parasites, as the Italian traffic planners call them, just using the asphalt, not contributing to my neighborhood in any in any positive way. We have all these shared back courtyards, right? Mm-hmm. There was a building down the middle here back in the day. Not here because there's a big old tree because this is where the trams used to turn around on that rounded wall here. Okay. But farther, all these buildings had, uh, we call, just called it a back house. And in the you know, urban renewal from the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, where they cleaned up the whole city, they tore so many of them down to give us this green space. I've heard recently people saying, well, we got all that space in the middle there. Maybe we should build it again because <laughs> right. you know, we got 12,000 people per square kilometer here in Fredericksburg, you know, and, uh, and we, you know, we're looking at it different. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I think we have too much value on our green space now, but mm. the conversation has emerged a couple of times, you know, let's yeah. put those old houses back, which would be great for density, but you'd have to give up your backyard, right? Jeez. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, it's, it's one of the, the funny thing in, in, um, in North America, certainly with density is there's there's only two sizes. There's sprawling, you know, single family home suburbia and then there's, you know, forty story condos. 
and this in-between density, which we, we all know, like, if you study, you know, I remember starting to, you know, research climate change solutions and inevitably coming to, oh, a whole bunch of these are going to be urban questions, city questions. And, and that middle density, the mid-rise, you know, four to eight story apartment buildings with, you know, shops and offices on the ground floor, basically European city de- design is by far, it's the sweet spot. It's where you get that you have enough density for transit, you have a good mix of uses, everything's very walkable, people like it. I mean, you know, no, the funniest thing is North, uh, we all, North Americans, come to Europe and, oh, it was such a great holiday. All I did was, you know, sit at the corner cafe and watch the world go by. Well, we'd like to put a corner cafe in your neighborhood and, and, and a little bit of that does. No, no, God, no, we couldn't possibly. That would that would ruin the character of our neighborhood. Where am I going to park? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. It's the ideal solution. Field-tested, most effective way to make cities both more livable and you know more climate friendly is to build at this scale and almost nowhere in North America do we build at this scale we're starting to a little every now and then you know like the neighborhood I live in in Calgary now you're starting to see six and eight story condos with retail in the, in the ground floor and even then there's significant pushback right I mean they get built thankfully but but you know you know I have neighbors who think oh this you know oh the traffic's going to get bad and you know, yeah. A ten minute walk from the center of a city of a million and a half people. Yeah, traffic's gonna get bad. Yeah. That's good. I don't know what you thought you were buying when you moved into this neighborhood. All right, we have certain energy transition darlings, renewable, you know, energy darlings. Denmark, mm-hmm. I guess you're, you would you would yeah. say uh, Norway, Iceland, Portugal yeah. now, right? Um, Germany. What about cities? Can you zoom in and identify some cities that are are doing really cool things for? Uh, you know, to battle climate change uh, policy-wise or anything, you're going to say Copenhagen probably, I know. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm not fishing for that, but, I mean, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's the cities that are also, you know, high, like rank high, high in livability ratings and, and have lots of people on bikes and good transit. Copenhagen and Amsterdam. I don't know Amsterdam as well, but I know it would rank highly. Oslo, you know, uh, uh, increasingly pushing cars out of its downtown. Barcelona, which I know you know well. I don't have, like, a, like in my head, like a table of carbon footprint and, you know, urban livability cross-reference, but you'd keep hitting the same cities. But there are ones that you don't necessarily immediately think of. You know, Singapore, for example, you know, uh, even before, they, they, they didn't even do this for climate reasons, although it turns out to be a great climate tool, but, they, you know, they pioneered congestion charging. And, you know, if you own a car in Singapore and there's a huge luxury tax on it, you're the uh, whether you have an odd or even numbered license plate that says which, which times of day and which days of the week you can drive it. Uh, into the into the city center, and and they used all the the congestion charging money when they charge people to use the downtown to build really really good transit, um, and you see that actually in a number of, of uh, Asian cities where the density or the transit investment or whatever else wasn't initially a climate tool, but it, it winds up you know helping a lot. You know, Hong Kong's another city where the urban density there, the quality of transit, all that sort of stuff has has been, and it's interesting because it's a city that I think a generation ago was kind of like in a, in a dystopian movie. It was sort of like, you know, like Blade Runner was kind of Hong Kong-ish looking. Oh my God, the, the high rises and the, you know, the crowding. And everything. and actually Hong Kong turns out to be, you know, quite livable uh, thanks to all that uh, in a lot of ways. Um, some of the, I mean, I, I don't know them personally. It's, it's been a long time goal of mine to figure out some way to, you know, get sent to China on assignment. Because I would really like, I mean, I know if you, if you are at some big high level urban design or, or urban architecture conference, all the all the kind of kind of top level guys all have their pet China project. It seemed like China was just, you know, going around to all the sort of Peter Calthorpes of the world. Like, hey, can you build us a whole city from scratch? And, and I don't know how well all of those are coming together, but I know that they, you know, China is doing stuff. I mean, is I think it's Shenzhen that just you know converted its entire you know, municipal bus fleet to electric vehicles in like you know a couple of years. 
Uh, so some of the scale stuff that they can do in a country like China, because of the size of it, because you have a central, you know, command and control authoritarian yeah. government dictatorship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is not to defend a dictatorship, but if we're looking strictly on climate terms, or you know, or on on, on urban livability, urban sustainability terms, some of the stuff they're doing is is the right choice, and um, and they don't have the problem. Uh, that a lot of us do of the pushback from people who are very dug into the status quo and even if it isn't working terribly well that's the thing that always kind of there's a side note but it always amazes me. I don't often have to drive in rush hour in Calgary but every now and then you know something's my daughter's got a baseball practice she needs to be taken to at that time of day or something and I get out into it and you, you know the, the bottlenecks are all the places you, you know everyone knows where they are and you know some days it's a little bit okay but as soon as there's like a single stalled vehicle it's just chaos and you're just crawling along and I anytime I'm in that situation I think it's weird to me that all these people around me are the people who push back against the changes that could possibly fix this and and I guess that's where that gets into the fact that you know we're not really terribly good at you know everyone thinks the, the common sense would tell you you know if, if there's too many cars on the street widen it and then you can get more cars through but we know <laughs> that's not how that goes oh God, so yeah yeah that's why I was just came back from Helsinki, and I was mm. stupid late for, to catch the train to the airport. And I'm not really familiar with uh, you know the train station or whatnot. Yeah. And I just and I went, oh my god, I'm gonna miss my plane. So I went out and I grabbed a taxi. Right. And once in a while I do that. You know, mm. in my daily life here in Copenhagen, I think I spend maybe two hours a year in a car. But mm. I'll take some taxis or be driven around in other cities. Right. But I felt stupid because I knew there was a train that was gonna go, but I didn't want. I couldn't risk it. I was really cutting it. Right. And you know. It's really cool in the sense that you got to remember this stuff, right? It's really cool to sit in that taxi and just like, you know, freaking out because of the traffic. It was rush hour in the afternoon. Yeah. And I'm going, oh, I am so stupid. I am so stupid. I should have planned it better. You know, very <clears throat> Danish yeah. pragmatism. I could have totally planned this better. And then I'm going, wait, you know, chill and experience this because it sucks. It's stupid. You know, yeah. and you got to do that once in a while, right? Like you got to <laughs> actually sit in that traffic to remember what you're fighting for in your in your, in, in your work, right? Yeah. So I, I, I tried to spin it positively and say, yeah, this totally sucks, and I'm going to enjoy the suckiness of it because I don't have to do this in my daily life, and I can see what's possible in other cities, right? But yeah, yeah. well, um, recognizing that people do learn. To, it was interesting. I was at this conference in Berlin. That's where I was right before here, and uh, we were talking to a guy, one of the other journalists in the uh, at the conference. He's from Delhi, India's urbanizing at a crazy rate, middle-class prosperity on the rise, so more people are driving. So apparently the traffic in, in Delhi is just horrific. And it takes this guy, like, he's two hours each way to work in his car. And I, and I said, so, do you, like, is there any other option? He's like, no, the, you know, we do have a, Delhi does have a, a, a subway now, new metro, fairly new metro, but it just, the routes don't work for him or whatever. And he was very much like, you know, yeah, but, you know, I've gotten used to it and there's things I do. So I think we're... Um, you know, highly adaptable animals. We, people will figure out a way to make a little nest of their whatever commuter vehicle they're in, and and decide that that's actually you know this is working great for me. I, I listen to three podcasts on my way to on my way to work every day. I I, lo- I value that time or you know, whatever it is. And I, I I mainly mention that because I think when when you or I are talking about this, we're like, why the hell would anyone choose to be in this traffic every day? But you know, certainly in Canada, the majority of, of the population has chosen it in one way or another. Now they might not have consciously chosen it, but they are now. 
that is what they've adapted to. That is the system that, to their minds, delivers the life that they're leading that they don't think is so bad. And I think that's. I only mention that because I think there there tends to be when we get going on this stuff to kind of say like like these crazy people need to be liberated from their own insanity. And like, no, no, they they made rational choices. You know, they wanted to live in the kind of neighborhood they wanted to live in. All now they didn't ask for all the in between stuff. They didn't say, hey, because I want to live in, you know, I want to have a house, you know, that that has a little yard. I necessarily need curving avenues that that are entirely designed for cars and and sprawl out. If there were other choices in the marketplace, they might choose them. But but also, I think we have to like re- remember that people do like the things that you and I look at and think, why would you do that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I have friends here, you know, who who feel like they have to confess to me, like I'm some sort of you know, urban priest, you know, hey, Michael, I know, you know, we're, I live outside of Copenhagen in the northern suburbs, and, uh, but it's just quicker by car, and I'm going, okay, I get it, it's that A-to-B-ism, I mean, you're going to also Damn. choose the quickest route, and, and these friends of mine, they're going, but I actually, you know, tested it, right, I rode my bike to the station, took the train in, and, and rode my bike to work, and it's 15 minutes quicker by car, and I'm going, then drive your damn car, and that's our job, to make that, uh, other options easier for you, yeah. I kind of understand it, right, um, and then we have the North American context. It's like it's the only thing to do. So yeah, if you suck it up and say this is this is the life I lead. You know, yeah. I'm living my best life because I have no other options. But it's it's interesting how they, they feel like they have to tell me this. You know, yeah, and yeah. but they but my, to their credit, they they test it out and you know figure out okay, 30 minutes extra a day, I could be with my kids or, or whatever. I kind of I, I totally get that uh, that logic, right? They could maybe make that sacrifice. You know, some of them. But I understand. You're gonna choose the the path of least resistance. Absolutely. You know. Yeah, yeah. So we had to design better for them. The first book I read of yours, The Geography of Hope, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you've got more books since then, The Leap and uh, The Patch, right? Yeah. Uh, but I still, this is my go-to. Uh, this is the book I think I've recommended most to other people in my life. But that really changed it for me, this whole uh, narrative of you wanting to save the world after university and idealistic young man joining Greenpeace, canvassing door-to-door. The planet is screwed. It's your fault. Give us some money. And then you were disillusioned at the end of the summer, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, not even disillusioned. I think it was the... I mean, I wasn't very good at it to begin with. I'm not somebody who's good at knocking on random people's doors and convincing I'm not a salesman at all. Um, but more than that, it just seemed like this can't be the only story we tell about this. Hey, it's bad and getting worse. There had to be a way to tell you. Know, and I didn't really know what I was looking for. I hadn't ever you know, thought in any serious way about what sustainability... I, I, I don't think I even knew the term yet. I hadn't you know, really looked closely at you know, what was happening in terms of you know, clean energy or urban design or any of this stuff. It sounds like a. Yeah. It's a uh, dove. It's yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, well I can, I'll let that one go. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, that's 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 a nice background. The the the, the Sunday doves of Copenhagen <laughs> cheering us on. So I, I I didn't know what I was looking for, but I thought you know there has to like what people are going to work toward. My, my kind of working hypothesis was, you want people like basically you want people who come to the, this is a great example. You come to Copenhagen. I, I remember coming here for the first time. Um, and I was actually en route to the island of Samsø because they had this, you know, they they were becoming the first renewable energy island of Denmark and you know eliminating their carbon footprint. And I had just sort of vaguely heard, oh, Copenhagen has this free bike program. I should check that out because this might be a thing that's going to catch. This was 2005, so you know it was not ubiquitous yet. And it was you probably remember it was old, like you put the kroner coin in and, yeah. it, and it popped out like a shopping cart in a, in a North American parking lot. Yeah. And you ro- rode it around and then and then redocked it. And I, I got one from outside the central station. I sometimes rode a bike when, when I lived in Toronto until 2003 and I would you know I had a bike and I would ride it around and you know you'd ride on back streets so that you're not dealing with traffic the whole time and all that stuff that you used to do 
before people thought about bike lanes in Canada. I just like basically followed the flow of bike traffic, which I didn't know was suddenly there's people biking by. I'll follow them, and I was like half an hour into it, and at the other side of the downtown, you know, the medieval downtown, and had just had this like really pleasant. You know, it was quiet, and I wasn't worried, and I wasn't anxious, and I just thought, this is, whatever they're doing here is clearly so much better than what anyone else is doing in terms of, you know, being able to ride a bike around a city. And that's really kind of the impulse I've chased is, like, who's doing things way better? So that you can point at it and not say, you're a bad person who has a giant carbon footprint and is destroying the world. You have these five different types of penance you can pick, which kind of, wouldn't you, wouldn't you like things to work better? So that became my kind of guiding hypothesis was let's find the stuff that works better and you actually see this just on a, on a side note the uh we've talked about this before but the the congress for the new urbanism for example those guys are, did not come together as you know climate warriors that's not the, they're they're aesthetically driven it's all about the beauty of the city and and the rest of it and yet you know each year the cnu gets a little bit more climate focused because i think what they're realizing is all this stuff we wanted because we just think it makes for nicer cities also is a climate solution. Those things are, it's almost a perfect 100% overlap of the stuff that looks nice, feels nice, is good to people, also all happens to be, you know, good for the planet. My working hunch is this is going to be fundamentally more convincing for people. If you're just saying here are better things to do, then here's the, you know, here's how to be less of a, of a, of a, of a sinner against the planet. And we still sort of see that. I mean, I, I, I get the other argument. I get, like, there's been this new wave since the last IPCC report about act in the next 12 years, or we're going to probably be looking at at least 2 degrees Celsius of warming. I get that, that that is an extraordinarily, you know, terrifying prospect to be staring down the face of. I still don't know, though, that the vast majority of the people who we need to, you know, to accept some changes in their lives are going to be motivated by parts per million. I just don't know that that's going to be, you know, in particular because, you know, in, in, in a sort of, you know, what's the collective action problem sort of way, which is basically collective action problems are, you know, I just, I care about my little thing a little bit more. than It's not that I don't care about you. It's that I care a little less about you than my own well-being. And, and so we wind up, you know, creating these collective action problems because we're not organized on it so you know if, if uh, you know i'm not going to be virtuous if i don't know you all are not going to be virtuous or whatever uh similarly on a time horizon i think there's like almost a collective action time problem which is that you know if you hear on the news or or you know hear from from somebody you trust oh you know like the you know we've got 12 years to save the planet or or we're doomed and and and, and everything's getting worse by the day in extreme weather and you know like some days you wake up and it is weird weather or whatever and you're like yeah that's that's true i am kind of but then a week later, nothing materially has changed in your life. And so from your point of view, if, you know, as a harried, you know, harried commuter getting to your job, dropping the kids off at daycare, you know, picking up the groceries on the way home, whatever else, that, that day-to-day getting, getting on with your life is going to outweigh your sense of, I really need to be, I don't know, driving a more fuel-efficient vehicle or, or, or living in a smaller house or, what, you know, like whatever. You're, if, if you're not immediately threatened, you're not going to feel that you're in a crisis. So trying to induce crisis, which has been a big focus in a lot of ways of, of kind of climate activists and, and, and climate you know, change action advocates or whatever. Incidentally, it's, it, the English phrases for this are all really awkward. Germany has, you know, Germans, they have a word for everything. Uh, Klimaschutz, which is climate protection. Yeah. And I didn't have to have this big preamble of, you know, people who want action on climate change. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the, this kind of, you know, induced crisis, uh, I guess, is a, 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 the more I say that, the more I think that's what we're trying to do, is make people feel, we know that the long-term consequences of climate change are, you know, very, very, very troubling. 
So how do I make that troublingness hit you right now? And that's, you know, I mean, I think there's probably a role to play, but there tends, I guess, to be too many eggs in that ba- that kind of advocacy basket, especially since this last IPCC report and there's kind of a, a wave of books now and, and articles coming out, like, here's how bad it's going to get. I, d- I mean, I remember reading the here's how bad it's going to get articles 20 years ago. And yes, it's part of the reason why I do some of the work that I do, but there seems to be a limited reach to that audience. Whereas the, you know, here's how your life is going to get better or here's how to here's how to make a neighborhood work better. There's a whole other constituency of people that that are reached by that message in a lot more effective ways. Now, you segued elegantly into the next thing I want to talk about without oh, yeah. even knowing it. So Beautiful. That, was, that was pretty much doing my work for me. That's great. Like, how do we talk about this? Our entire lives has been this narrative that mm-hmm. the world is screwed, right? Species extinction, habitat yeah. loss. Since all, the you 80s, know. you know, yeah. since you went in, in university and, you know, canvassing, whatever. I mean, your book, The Geography of Hope, led me to start thinking about the communication side of it. Right. And I've said that environmentalism is the greatest marketing flop in the history of Homo sapiens. We've never failed so miserably for so long at communicating an important message. Right. You know, we can sell toasters, like, a thousand times more effectively than uh, the world's dying, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and. And you're saying, like, it's just continuing, right? And uh, you, you, that disillusioned you as a, you know, when you came out of university and you wanted to look for other, you know, useful solutions that mean something to regular people in their homes also, right? Um, we're still talking about it, you know, and, and the Germans are amazing uh, for, you know, all the work they're doing, but they really just ring the cowbells of uh, danger, danger. It doesn't work. It's never worked in my lifetime or yours. So how do we talk about it here in Copenhagen, right? Mm-hmm. The world looks at us and says, oh, my God, there's all these amazing things. It's great. And the Denmark, I always say it's infrastructure. I, we only ride bikes here because it's safe and it's a fast A to B in the city, right? Yeah. There's infrastructure. I recycle in great detail because I have just beyond my bike rack here in the backyard, everything, you know, cardboard, metal, plastic, batteries, you name it. Uh, now we have biogas, so all of our organic, you know, waste goes in there and we generate gas somewhere in Denmark. It's all great. Right. Um, district heating, right? Uh, it's April and the city's going to turn off the heat in my home shortly and then it'll be off until October because why? We don't need it, right? So uh, they make that call for me. But we buy more organic food than any other country on the planet. 13% of all the food bought here is organic. Uh, number two is Sweden, I think, at 9%. Whatever. We're not environmental warriors, but I buy organic food because the, that industry made it accessible to me. Right. When they started, ah, oh, this is going to be a thing. You know, we can either make like lots of money like whole foods you know 40 bucks for an avocado or we could just sort of gently you know make more money over the long term so super accessible for me to make the right choice at the supermarket that infrastructure makes it me feel good in my daily life to buy the the, the you know the organic labeled yeah. food or to ride my bike or to recycle my garbage in the comfort of my backyard right you know how do we uh, take that massive thing and and communicate it better to, to people because we failed for 50 years so yeah, yeah. if it's the same narrative now and the whole 12 years and we're doomed okay <laughs> that's heavy shit man but well, not uh, only not only that so yeah I think you know I understand the argument that you know the the, the you know 12 years to save the planet where you know we're, we're going to be locked into a certain amount of warming I mean we're already locked into a certain amount of warming that's just the fact of it we're, we're at 400 and whatever parts per million there's still you know uh, and we're still a long way from zero emissions anywhere so th- that's that is true but is that effective messaging I want and and where I wonder is you know if you start to, to if you start saying to, to people who you know decision makers even just the general public you've done nothing to this point I, I disagree that we've done nothing but that, you know, that's so now you've got to do way more and you're bad at it and you don't have enough time 
if you're politician looking to get reelected, does that sound like a winning message to you? I need to stand up in front of people and say, I've done a bad job of this, and I, and I don't have enough time left to do it properly. Vote for me. <laughs> um, and, and I think it, like my, my, so my fear there would be it becomes the reason not to act. Well, if we can't fix it in 12 years, then there's no point. So why would we, why would we invest? You hear this argument in Canada because we're having this raging debate about a carbon tax. Why would we invest, all, you know, spend extra at the gas pump or whatever in order to fix our little 1% of global emissions when you know, all the rest of it is going to doom us to the same level of warming anyway? Why would we bother? And I think that's the, the and that's where I think, you know, the, the underused messaging around, hey, we're not saying, you know, your life should suck for you know to 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 make up for this what we're saying is here you know here's a toolkit like my favorite example of this not because you know we're neither of us are big fans of the car but the thing i like about a tesla as a, as a just as a, as a design paradigm is that tesla did not set out to make the cleanest car it did not set out to make a zero emissions car that was zero emissions and had no fossil fuel in it they set out to make the best car on the road that happened to be electric powered and that's what they did and people buy those cars already, not because they're, you know, eco-warriors, but because that is a fast, sleek, awesome, you know, sexy car. That's why it sells. Yes, also lots of the people who drive Teslas want to have small carbon footprints. Great. But it's, you know, it's the fastest car on the road. It's the safest car on the road. It, it does all of the stuff that, it, that the previous generation of, of motor vehicles do better. And I think that's where, you know... I, I still feel like that is the underused part of the toolkit. Like, why are we not talking about the fact that, you know, the, you know, the, I mean, the Copenhagen example, everything you just said, I mean, day-to-day life in Copenhagen, if you, you know, no, no one looks like they're bending under the burden of the fact that they must, you know, do their part for climate change or whatever. It's just part of daily life without you having to think about it too much. And I think that's the part that, you know, we've absolutely, you know, behavioral scientists and, 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 and you know, behavioral economists and, and psychologists and the rest who've all looked at the climate problem. And they, you know, what they see is one that, like, you know, like the, if it has to be a whole bunch of conscious choices, people are not going to always make the right conscious choices. So these things need to become, you know, just embedded in, in daily life. And then the other thing is the way we actually make decisions to change what we do is not for these rational reasons. It's not because someone showed us some statistics about our carbon footprint that made sense to us. It's because this is what people like me are doing, or this is the new, th- you know, the, wow, I really, you know, I saw a guy with this, you know, this great phone. I want a phone like his. That's how we actually make those choices. And that piece of it, I still feel like, even though, you know, it's people working on behalf of, of you know, climate policy think tanks and things like that who keep, you know, digging up all these psychological studies saying, here's why the messaging doesn't work. The, the response tends to be, no, we need, just need to message harder or something. Like, there's not that sort of moment of awareness of, okay, we need to kind of rebuild what we do from the ground up. And I think you'll see that. I, I wonder, actually. You know, you see this, you know, the Fridays for Future movement, which is, you know, incredibly powerful and inspiring and, and you know, good on uh, Greta and all the kids who are following her lead. But they will eventually, you know, that that passion to see something happen eventually meets up with the reality of, political systems and political institutions where the, the levers of change are not, you know, are not down on the street in, at the demonstration and where the, the, the thing is not designed to move very fast and it's not designed to, and I think this is you know, one of my big lessons of the last 10 years, getting involved more and more in politics and doing some behind the scenes work and stuff is, wow, is this institutional, you know, thing called, you know, Western democracy not built to move fast. It's just not a rapid response to anything. Uh, so how do you make it do 
this very, very difficult task that you've decided to set for it, which is to guide action on climate change. Um, and the answer may be that you don't, you know, this brings us back to where we started. Maybe you go to the municipal government first. Rather than, you know, hammering on your federal government to change their climate target and, you know, put a higher tax on carbon, not that those aren't good things to do, maybe your more effective thing would be to just overwhelm city council the next time they're talking about density. Um, and the C40, I mean, mm. this, is a, this is a thing, and they have yeah. their big conferences here in Copenhagen later. Uh, in 2019, so that's sort of a sign that yeah, cities are the new you know, new nations in a way yeah. uh, because of change is more effective. But the daughter of the Canadian scientist David Suzuki spoke at the first climate conference in Rio de Janeiro, mm-hmm. and it's on YouTube and it's powerful. This young kid, you know, yeah. And now we have Greta Thunberg, but like nothing happened. And I and I love yeah. Greta Thunberg, and I love all the kids who are doing this. It's wow, yeah, that was really awesome. And I wish this, and I hope this will go to that place it needs to go. But uh, I don't have a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of data to support that yeah. it's going to work, right? But so I'm wondering about still how to talk about it. You know, Cycle Chic, when I started the Copenhagen Cycle Chic blog and that movement exploded, yeah. um, you know, and most of the you know viewers were women just looking at photos of other people riding bikes. Yeah. And that, like flipping through a fashion magazine, yeah. same thing. Yeah. Flashcard advocacy, I called. I'm just saying, yeah, this is normal. Yeah, this is normal. Yeah, this is normal. You know, and the, just the testimonials I received through the years from women all over the world. Like, I can ride a bike in heels. I knew I could, and now I, you know, yeah. or in my in my business clothes or whatever, and boom, empowerment, right? Super cool. Because it was uh, showing showing them every day. Yeah. Normal. Which, which is know? absolutely class. I mean, that's, like, right out of the pages of, the like, the behavioral economists, all the people who built on Daniel Kahneman's uh, Nobel-winning work. And that's basically the thing that, I mean, the, the, my, my example of it that I often use when I'm talking to certain kinds of audiences, you know, why is it in politics, in North American politics anyway, uh, there's so much emphasis on knocking on doors and getting people to put a sign on their lawn that says, you know, vote for so-and-so. The reason is because it is extraordinarily effective behavioral marketing that says to everyone in that neighborhood, people like me support this person. So particularly if you're asking them to do something that's a bit out of the ordinary, like, you know, in... in, in uh, Alberta, where I live, and we're having an election right now, and people aren't used to voting NDP. But if you see an NDP lawn sign on your neighborhood, you think, "Oh, maybe people like me are not so conservative as I thought." Or maybe, you know, and that is exactly what you're describing with Psycho Chic. Hey, maybe I'm not weird to to you know want to dress nice and then ride a bike, and, or just and, dressed like in your normal clothes. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and I think that's that that piece of it. I don't know. Like, I think that this disconnect that we're kind of kind of trying to unravel here—that's where I think some of that comes is that often, or too often, anyway, the the messaging around climate change is that, so the thing you're going to need to do to to make this change happen is is kind of weird and you've never heard of it and and it doesn't sound like anything anyone like you did. So, are you ready to do it? Well, no. That's not how that's how people make change. Particularly when you're asking them to make changes in like really basic stuff, like how you heat your house. Or what you what the way you get to work every day stuff that people think of as just like bedrock, you know I I I don't want to think about this decision. I want it to be a routine and not have it be kind of in my face in any way. And so I think that's the part where and we are I think starting to to do a better job of that. But that's where you see I think the biggest gap between you know we've got to save the planet kind of rhetoric and here's what people can do. Yeah. That 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 when that conversation gets translated down, it's often not terribly. Usefully, and I, I, you know, I'm sure you do too. You wind up at a conference or something like that, and you're on a panel talking about this stuff. And there's always the, you know, so tell, you know, what is your one thing that you think everyone should do? To and and it's always, you know, well, you could change out all your light bulbs to LEDs, or and I, uh, you know, inevitably will say something about, well, you, what you, you personally need to become part of a political movement that can change. Like, the, I, I really don't care what you personally are doing. 
I really don't. Get on an airplane and fly around the world and land, and then when you land, start a political movement that can actually make a policymaker change what they, you know, uh, change the way things work. And 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 hold, on. I mean, th- we were talking about this, but like, th- th- this is where some of that disconnect happens too, where like the C forty mayors and stuff like that, and you know, Bill De Blasio in New York held up as this great climate champion, and he says all the right things about the stuff that has nothing to do with him. You know, he is absolutely committed to not building pipelines and to, you know, reducing the amount of oil we produce from the oil sands in Alberta, which is nowhere near the city of New York. But if you're a cyclist in the city of New York, he does not give a crap about you. And that's, there's massive evidence to that. To, and, that's, and that's where, if you're a climate advocate in, in, in New York, you should not be fighting about whether or not to invest in pipelines. You should be forcing your mayor to properly police the bike lanes. That's where, you know. And to slow down the cars and congestion charge and whatnot. All that I mean, stuff, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's where, I mean, and you actually have control over that. You don't have a lot of control over the global oil industry. <laughs> Not as long as you're still using their product anyway, you know. Bicycle advocacy that borrowed everything from the 70s and 80s in the environmental movement. You still see bicycle advocacy groups, you know, banging on about saving a polar bear on your bike today. And, you know, right, all right. of that. You know, ride a bike, it's healthy, it's good for the planet. You know, nobody rides for that reason. They ride if there's infrastructure, right? It's interesting. One of the best campaigns... I've ever seen. And it's really not a tough competition to have a really effective behavioral change uh, campaign for bikes. Yeah. was the city of Malmo in Sweden where they, uh, they started no more ridiculous car trips. They wanted to reduce the number of short trips by car under five kilometers, you know, right, right. Uh, and, and put people over to bikes or public transport or whatever. Um, and so they had people, motorists, write in with their stupidest car trip. Yeah, actually, oh, there's just one thing I do every morning, you know, it, it's totally irrational. And then they won bikes for the whole family, whatever. They did it for, for years, and they actually like reduced the number of uh, car trips. So that humor, um, environmentalists are not funny fuckers. <laughs> They're not the people I go yeah. out and drink and have fun with. Or, or they are that person, except when they, they are speaking with their official environmentalist hat on, at which point you must be grave, and and and, and, and it must sound de- de- desperate and grim and, oh, the world, you know. Whereas, you know, I think, yeah, like, like that's a, such a great idea for a campaign. As soon as you started saying, I think, you know, every single... Every single Canadian probably has a story of like driving from one end of the shopping mall to the other because it was just. I mean, and this is. It, it also, also, I mean, you could. There's a whole second message. Like, the, one of my favorite things, I do this and drive my kids nuts because I pointed out so much, is like the. In North American shopping mall parking lots, there'll be like a, a, a sidewalk that doesn't go anywhere or just abruptly stops. And then yeah. you're just now out into the asphalt wastes with you to, to fight against the cars. The craziest example of this which I, I, I use often when I'm t- talking to you know audiences about about design and how it shapes our choices is the children's hospital parking lot in Calgary has no there's there's even a space that would even though it wasn't designed for it where the cars are facing each other and 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 in the in the, in the underground parking lot and there's kind of a lane in between them so there you look and th- there's a, you know a kid in a wheelchair uh, a kid in a stroller what that that would be except they put signs in there to say you know this is this kind of parking and this is that kind of parking so the messaging telling the cars where to go is so much more important than keeping kids safe that they messed up the one accidental (laughs) safe space that they built in a children's hospital parking lot and i think the reason that's effective uh, or i think i think of it as i think people you remember it's the same way you remember when you did stupid stuff of your own you you know people remember funny stories uh even if there was a point where um uh, you know, it was really effective messaging to scare the crap out of people and, and say, you know, oh, the, you know, the, we're, we're, in, we're in deep trouble and getting deeper. You, that message has now so fully saturated the conversation that I think anyone who was going to, to be moved by that has already been moved by it.
I don't know you're going to convince a lot of new people, you know, who and, and who justifiably, frankly, can say for 25 years, you people have been telling me that the sky's going to fall. It hasn't fallen. It's gotten weird, but it, but I'm, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not a climate refugee, you know, escaping a, a, a maelstrom of hell. Mm. My life's still pretty okay, actually. So yeah. my you know, hockey team sucks, but other than that, everything's pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. yeah. Okay, I have a, a dear friend of mine in Berlin, American woman. She teaches sustainable stand-up. She, she does workshops <laughs> to get people to be able to talk funny about the right, grave right. challenges we face. So that's also I'm thinking connected with the no. No more ridiculous car trips in Malmo. Yeah. It's 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 an uphill battle, I think. You know, making making it funny in order to change behavior, but that might be the most effective way to go when yeah. we've had fifty years of uh, you know failed yeah. uh, marketing techniques. What right? I think is that Bruce Sterling, um, sci- sci-fi author, futurist, who calls hair shirt environmentalism. Like, you know, I am suffering and come suffer with me. Sort of that that's that should be the tone. You know, and he, and he talks about that. His argument. This was years ago. He wrote a kind of an you know one-off essay on this subject but it was it, that part of it stuck with me where he was basically saying this is basically the inverse of the have anything you want wherever you want all it does is just stand it on its head it doesn't actually challenge the basic assumptions of the system it just says the system which you've been hearing is completely right is actually completely wrong and and i think there's you know there's a limit to who will, who who is moved by that argument uh i i mean it, it, i think the the constituency might be getting bigger i think you look at you know, and and you know, advocates will they'll point like you know the vast majority of people in most of the world now accept the fact that climate change is is, is a you know scientific reality and, and that sort of thing. But I mean, geez, that's the you know twenty five years in that's the that, that's your success story. People don't think what you know don't 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 think it's fake. <laughs> like, <laughs> twenty five years of messaging and we got to that point. Oh my yeah, god, yeah, 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 yeah. So and and I think you know uh, this is the other thing is when you get every now and then you see these little breakthroughs and it's always. Or I shouldn't say always. Often, like I'm, I'm thinking just, just out of nowhere, and I'll have to explain the full context for for your listeners. So here's here's a here's a you know climate disaster. There was a major flood in southern Alberta in 2013. You know, century level flood. City of Calgary, where I live, you know, half the entire downtown had to be evacuated. Several small towns and cities around us were completely flooded. As in every single time this happens, there's a little, you know, you can't say definitively that's what caused the flood. But we know that, you know, climate change was a factor in making the, the in, in exacerbating the, the problem. And, and it makes that kind of flood more likely, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, mayor of High River. High River is not a, you know, town full of environmental radicals. It's, you know, conservative heartland you know, small agricultural ranching community south of Calgary. Like an hour south or something. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, about that. And when they were going to rebuild the downtown, the mayor just got in my, I can't remember, I think somebody came to him and said, hey, when you're rebuilding, do you want to think about like wider sidewalks and maybe some space for bikes and pedestrians and a nice urban environment? And the example that they, that they used was Banff, little, you know, pretty little mountain town, world famous, you know, ski resort and the rest of it. And there was a bit of pushback at, you know, at the, council level in, in High River, like, well, yeah, but we're not Banff. We're, you know, we're not a big tourist destination. And the, the mayor's response, which is great, was, well, the, so that means we can't have nice stuff? Why don't we just have some nice stuff? And they wound up doing quite a nice job of rebuilding the downtown. And again, I think, like, the, the part of the message there is, you know, that, that um, you know, if you show people good stuff, they'll want more of it. But also, like, the mayor didn't get up on a big, like, oh, we must, you know, you know, for in the interest of climate change, we must widen the sidewalks and, and, and make it more walkable, even though you don't, it's going to hurt. You know, like, the, the message was more like, hey, I want it to be nice. Well, you know, if it works there, why wouldn't it work here? People are people. Why Why are we acting like, you know, there's some special case when you're when you're in a mountain town that, that you deserve a nicer sidewalk than, than, than that. And I think that's, 
that side of it this begins to there's a little bit of humor there's an edge of humor there but it also comes around to this idea of like what you know let's stop beating people over the head with how bad it is or how bad it can get and let's you know tell them we want to give you something nice and here's how much you'll like it it'll be great now we were out last night as we do <laughs> drinking yes. some wine I just got back from Helsinki and uh, and we t- I talked about this guy uh, comes up to me after the keynote and said yeah but y'all oh, this is you know all bikes and stuff but you know we, we're in Helsinki we have hills here so people aren't going to ride and I'm going dude you have like 11% of the population already doing what you claim is impossible right yeah. so of course infrastructure will lead to more people I mean Oh, and the Finnish winter. You don't understand the Finnish winter. And I'm going, you live in Helsinki, so neither do you, because it's you yeah. don't have what you have in the Arctic. And it's a little bit colder than Copenhagen, maybe a bit more snow, but it's not the you know, it's it's not <laughs> the Arctic, right? And in my book, uh, Copenhagen Eyes, I have a chapter called about, about myth busting. Yeah. You yeah. know, and if I had a, like one euro for every time I had to bust a myth, man, would be yeah. I would have flown you into my island in the Bahamas, dude. <laughs> Jesus. So like what are the what are some of the stupid stuff? Uh, that you hear oh, from God. people uh, regarding climate change and all that. Well, I mean, climate change it begins with the, the the facts of the case, which is my. I mean, you know, this is probably my favorite in a in a you know in ironic quotes kind of way, um, where someone comes up to you, you know, you, and and thankfully happens less and less. Comes up to me after a talk, or sometimes it's like you know someone at a the most recent one was at a neighborhood barbecue, and and the guy heard you know oh you're you you write about climate change well. You know, do you know about, and, and as soon as it's out of his mouth, do you know about, and I'm like, this guy is going to say solar forcing, or he's going to say something about, about um, uh, you know, natural glacial cycles. Or Basically, he thinks, and this is the amazing part, this guy thinks he, in his 10 minutes of Googling, outsmarted the entire global scientific community, and he has cracked this thing, and he's going <laughs> to tell me. And I and then I wonder like when I walk away from this is because I think it I think it gets down to like how little people think about some of the stuff that comes out of their mouth because you think like does he honestly think like I was just in Berlin at this energy transition conference where they, you know all these senior German government people senior people from governments around the world did they all like are we all like standing up and t- giving speeches to each other and then snickering behind our ha ha we've we've sold them on this this really good no this another two hundred people we pulled the wool <laughs> yeah, over yeah. their eyes yeah. like what does you know the huge amounts of, of, of investment and you know science and engineering and you know production that has gone into making solar power a, a viable you know affordable uh, thing around the world the, like all of that was a bunch of people who were either completely deluded because they hadn't read the one thing this guy had or somehow like this was just the biggest snake oil you know sales job in the history and it, I'm sure it's like this for you when you the, this myth busting like Jesus do I really have to explain this is this really all right fine so that that whole cluster of things there's and they're they're so well trod now in, in climate change circles that as soon as I hear there's like three or four phrases solar forcing and 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 little ice age and you know, like the oh you're one of these people who thinks you've outsmarted the climate scientists okay we can talk about this uh the next big kind of tranche of myths is all the stuff that, you know, this won't work or it isn't working or... So I hear routinely, for example, because I wind up talking about Germany, mainly because Germany was the first big industrial nation to do it. And so you can... This is actually interesting for you. I'm sure you've, you've heard this before. If you talk about Denmark or Scandinavia generally, people are like, oh, yeah, but they're different. You know, they're not homo sapiens, I guess. Yeah. They're some sort of mythic forest creature of the north with Viking helmets, and that's why they were able to do this, but that's not relevant to me. Germany, for some reason, at least to a North American audience, oh, well, Germans are doing it. Maybe maybe there's something to it. And so you end up talking about you know, what Germany's doing. 
And now, like any country going through this energy transition, it's messy and there's steps forward and steps back. Germany accelerated the phase out of its nuclear power in order to, basically in order to appease the very, very strong anti-nuclear sentiment in the country. Um, and that meant that they relied on coal for a little longer than they were planning. And so this is all, like, n one, none of this is unknown. Like, the, the, if you follow this stuff, if, if it's, and it is literally my job to know this shit. <laughs> I know this shit. And you come up to me at a conference like, I heard Germany, I heard that renewable stuff didn't work in Germany and they had to build a whole bunch of coal plants. Well, wherever you heard that was not my sources, because my sources don't know what the hell's happening. And do you want to talk rationally about what you've heard and why it's wrong? And, and usually they don't. The people who do this, you know, I, I have this one fact that you don't know that's going to blow your whole world apart. That's, they're not looking for a real debate. They no. just, they're highly motivated to somehow, for whatever reason, remain skeptical about this thing that is demonstrably happening in the world. The energy that, the embedded energy in solar panels, the fossil energy that you need to produce solar panels outweighs any positive climate change impact, which is <laughs> not even remotely true. But, you know, that people, and, and you can, this is where we get back to the behavior change thing. If you are strongly, strongly motivated to believe in a thing or, or, or accept an argument because it's, you know, your, your gang, your people, your tribe, do you know, are anti-climate change or whatever and you you can see because you're you know somewhat sentient human being oh there's a lot of stuff out there sort of indicating this is real i better really find the you know like i i'm gonna hunt even harder for the counterfactuals which is why they like for example like the, the some of the long-term behavioral studies uh, of climate change and climate change denial have found that it's not ignorance like it's not the people who know nothing about climate change who are the strongest anti-climate change zealots it's people who've like actually learned a bit like they've they, and they think that they've made you know they've found the convincing counter-argument they googled for 30 minutes yeah, not just yeah, 10 right? yeah not yeah. just 10 so yeah that's there's a whole other great uh, wave of myths and then now and it really is just it's it's like the you can see the bar gets moved a bit further every time so now in Canada for example a lot of it is about not that we shouldn't do anything about climate change not that it isn't happening but what we're doing doesn't matter we, we why would we bother having a carbon tax our emissions are way too small to matter carbon taxes aren't that effective and I've, I've learned three facts that aren't facts about why they're not effective and so, you know, like, why would we go through all this pain? And it's not all. It's four cents on a liter of gas. It's mm. not. And, and, we are, and, and, and for, for, you know, for Europeans in the audience, our gas is, like, incredibly cheap compared to yours already anyway. So, yeah. so now it's that, that you know, yeah, yes, it's happening. Yes, it's, it's serious. But the thing you're saying we should do about it doesn't work or, or, won't, or won't matter or, or, you know, and then there's, like, you know, or we're going to come, when, when it comes down to it, we're, you know, we'll come up with some, you know, silver bullet, nuclear fusion, magical, you know, perpetual motion machine to fix the problem. All of it ultimately stems from the same thing, and it's the same with the bike people. We're social animals, which also makes us tribal. And so, like, for example, the car commuters of the world are, you know, in are, are, feel like they are all part of the same, you know, social milieu or, or mm -hmm. however you want to, and, and they defend their... You know, the, the, this is my, you're telling me my routine that I do every day is wrong. Well, I don't. I don't buy that. I, I, I don't think I'm doing anything wrong. So I'm going to find the, the, the few facts and 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 also the the fact that we all like the, the, this. I'm sure you run into a lot. Everyone thinks they're the special case. Like, oh yeah, you know, you know, maybe in Copenhagen they can you know they can shrink their carbon footprint, but they don't have you know like they're not in Canada with our you know the, the huge wide open spaces. We can't you know you're not going to ride a bike across the prairies and you know and yeah, so yeah. everyone thinks they're the, they're the special case and 
and everyone you know kind of buys their own bullshit basically so the new one it's only a couple of weeks old uh, uh, I don't know you might not have heard it yet but wind cancer like Donald Trump oh, saying God, that yeah. wind causes cancer right hashtag yeah. wind cancer like oh it's yeah. great how the, the, you know but these people that come up to us because we are who we are and uh, they feel like they need to engage us with you know their 10 minutes of googling or whatever I mean oh you know we're just humans and we're in good moods and we're in bad moods we're hungover we're tired whatever you know or we're on top of the game whatever yeah i mean sometimes it's just like oh you know i get more abrupt i think with people um really trying not to be rude um trying to be funnier than rude uh depends where you are in the world how that works for what works out for you but you know lisbon yeah there's a woman uh, oh yeah lisbon that wouldn't work there you know um i live there and we have hills i'm going and i'm i was just tired and i said 85 percent of lisbon is under five percent grade 85 percent never mind the two little bumpy hills you know no oh but you know this no no, no. i was just shutting her down and smiling as i'm doing it and uh oh sometimes you just get tired of it but you in a way we have to do it right we have to keep you do, so, you know, although you got to be polite to people who want to talk to you, right? But yeah, well, and I think you try and you know gently say, okay, I understand, you know, that, that you think that this thing you're telling me is is relevant, but here's why I I don't think it is, and I don't think that these are these are people who come up to you to have a rational conversation. They are trying to hurl a truth bomb at you, <laughs> and 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 so anything you come back with is just you obfuscating. And to some degree, I mean, it's you know, the, uh, maybe you assume like if if you come up to me and start talking to me about climate change that I've had to hunt as hard as you did to to make my case as opposed to it just being you know absolutely abundantly clear that this is what's happening um but but ultimately i think you know like this is where we get down to like the like certainly what they've found in 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 the psychological research around climate change is that people are really only going to be motivated to one to accept that it's something that they need to do something about and the kinds of solutions they'll accept when it comes from within their social milieu their tribe like when when it's you know, and, and there's great examples of this. Uh, there's one I'm thinking of right now because I'm going back to, to Canada and, and, and going to a wind energy conference. And, and uh, we are quite likely going to go from a left-leaning government to a right-leaning government in the province of Alberta where I live. And, and this will change things a lot. for They've re- run on dismantling all kinds of climate action and the rest of it. But there's a great example where, where uh, Rick Perry... Former governor of Texas, not a particularly bright man, certainly not somebody who really understands climate change. I believe he's in the let God sort it out camp. God will, okay. God, you know, God will, God will provide. Uh, but he is within, you know, within the, you know, the limited landscape of of Donald Trump and his and his, you know, and his administration and, and hangers on, a pretty strong wind energy advocate. And that's not because, and and he, that's not because he, you know, got religion on climate change. That's because Texas made while he was governor was making piles and piles of money in the wind energy business. And so he, you know, he, you know, a guy like him, you know, religious conservative, Fox News worshiping, not terribly bright guy, does know, you know, when when the going's good. Yeah. And and so that's the kind I think, you know, there's a chunk of. I mean, the U.S. is an extreme case. The Republican Party is the single largest and most well-funded and organized climate change denial organization on Earth, by far. It's, and, and when you tell Americans that, I think they say, no, but everyone else is having this debate, right? Not to the not the way you guys are. Like, it's this insanity where it's, you know, the, an entire, you know, I mean, Canada, for example, there are still probably some deeply skeptical slash denialist people in the Conservative Party of Canada, but they have to have climate policies now. They can't pretend it's not a... a they're, Climate policies are terrible, but they have to have them. Otherwise, they don't look legitimate. They don't look like they're capable of governing. A guy like Rick Perry can become a wind energy advocate without ever having to buy into the climate change thing. 
and then he becomes a much more effective voice within that you know world of of fox news watching climate change denialists who don't think science is real where he he's going to be way more effective if it's coming from you know the governor of california and and those you know those those weirdos out there or some you know some climate change advocate environmentalist probably a communist there is no set of facts you're going to deliver in that package that's going to work but rick perry going hey there's a lot of money in this i find it interesting you know you have to educate people in a way about their own history in their in their country or city or whatnot oh we never used to cycle here to you know kind of a little bit you know arrogant smiling young urban planners from singapore oh but michael it's all very nice but we never cycled here with that smile of i know everything and uh it's getting easier is my point now um archives are being digitalized so i can go out and find 10 photos that say you did cycle in Singapore it was massive and just oh, yeah. people cycling to work in the 50s and 60s whatever every city, city in Asia was a bicycle city at some point every city in the world almost you know oh, yeah. I mean there's even photos from Calgary back in the back in the day it was oh, yeah. bikes down you know in the downtown and stuff right so mm-hmm. it, it, so it's easier also uh, oh well it's hot here you know this is Florida Michael yeah so go to Seville because Seville's done it now, 0.2% to 7% on bikes in four years, network of infrastructure. It's, it's, my job's getting kind of easier, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, solar's not going to work in Alberta. I remember you writing, you know, yeah. you're going, yeah, Germany's transitioning to solar, and they don't have any sun. Like, yeah, it's yeah. really, Well, know. and in fact, I mean, like, this is where, you know, our, our, our common sense, because like, I've absolutely got Trump-level, you know, Trump administration people, like, I mean, what are they going to do with the solar panels in the winter? Because, like, they... they literally know so little about it that they don't realize it doesn't have to be hot sun the solar cells aren't react aren't heat sensitive they're reacting to 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 direct solar energy but the southeast corner of alberta and i've told alberta audiences this and usually they're like oh you know well really gets as much sun over the course of a year you know available solar energy as rio de janeiro Wow. No one in Medicine Hat, Alberta, thinks of themselves as living in a similar climate to Rio de Janeiro. There's no, there's no Copacabana Beach, but they get just as much sun. Yeah, hours, hours of sunlight. Hours per of year. sunlight yeah, per yeah. year because it's an extremely sunny part of the world. Like yeah. there's, you can go, you know, weeks and weeks in southern Alberta and not see a cloud. Oh, Windsor! I flew into Windsor mm. uh, last year, and around their airport, there's all these solar. It's a solar farm around their yeah. airport. It's just empty land. You know, if a plane's going to crash, it's going to break them. But, I mean, it's not, there's no homes or anything. But it, it, obvious, there's a lot of obvious spots for that. And you see it when, you know, when you fly. You, whoa, you know, you're in the middle of the states flying over continental U.S. And you uh, look down and you go, there's like windmills, wind turbines, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah, it surprises you because you're thinking that they don't care. And, yeah. you know, we're Iowa in, is a big wind state. Iowa, cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, Minnesota. Yeah. There's a lot of wind. Province of Ontario, which Windsor is in, is a great example of how... Yeah, when we're talking about like effective climate messaging and things like that. So uh, Ontario directly copied the German Green Energy Act. Like basically, oh, you know, the feed-in tariff, it creates sort of incentives to do to do renewable energy. Uh, you pair that with some, you know, industrial development, you create jobs, it'll be great. Uh, they did a couple of things to the legislation that were not perfect. That, that you know, that some of the German policy people they were working with said, don't do that, it'll, it'll cause problems, and it did. But the larger thing that happened, basically, was when Germany rolled out its Green Energy Act, and continues to this day, it's embedded in a national narrative. Like, you know, it began with, you know, we're going to have 100,000 solar roofs in Germany. There'll be 100,000, you know, ni- ni- nice little uh, German ho- homeowners with, with solar panels on their roofs. And then, you know, it's the, you know, the, this is part of our, our, our you know, our 
you know, mission to the world to help, you know, renewable energy be ready for prime time. And we're German engineers and we'll be good at it and, we're, and, and we can do this. And now, you know, now they, you know, the, the energy vendor, the, the energy transition, we are teaching the world how to, how to manage this, this shift from, from one thing to another. And they were very, like the, the original policy guys who I've, you know, interviewed and, and, and tracked their careers and the rest of it were very, very deliberate. They knew this had to be, you know, a carefully orchestrated communications campaign. And you needed to buy, you know, win allies, you know, one solar roof to another. Uh, when Ontario rolled theirs out, the minister in charge of it, the guy who'd kind of made it happen, decided he wanted to run for mayor of Toronto, so he stopped advocating for it. Uh, the government of the, you know, and it was a you know liberal government that believed firmly in what it was doing, but they just there was there seemed to be this assumption of like, well, you know, green energy is good, so people will see it and they'll go, hey, good, that's that's good. And instead, what happened was these mainly European uh, wind developers formed partnerships, like little little sort of Ontario satellite companies. Those companies went, found the best wind resources, leased all the land from whoever, whatever farmers, and by the, by the time they were getting to like pouring concrete for the bases of these wind turbines, then they were like, oh yeah, we, we also, you know, the legislation says we have to have a town meeting. So we'll have a town meeting where all these people who are pissed off to find out that the, one, they, they don't get a wind turbine on their property and they're not making any money off it, and it's going to like spoil the view that they've been enjoying for the last 50 years. We'll let them stand up and yell at us, but there's no actual dialogue happening here. And this, this happened, you know, one place after another across Ontario to the point now where Ontario is like rural Ontario small town Ontario ferociously hostile not just to wind energy to anything green energy I've seen anti-solar like handmade you know stop the solar farm signs because this is how hated this thing became and I think it's an example of, like, you know the, it's not enough that the thing you're doing is good for the planet and, and you know here's your bitter pill to swallow that was that the, there was a complete failure of communications and messaging around that instead of it being hey you know what Ontario is going to be like one of the first major jurisdictions in in the in you know in, in, in the entire west to completely eliminate coal from our grid no more coal. Look at this. We're doing. You know, there's. We're creating jobs in the solar industry. We're creating jobs in the wind industry. Hey, lots of lots of small farmers are, are getting a chance to, to make some money off the leases. Where it, they could have very easily, as as they do in Germany, give communities an opportunity to directly invest in the solar renewable energy developments near them. They did none of that, and, and it turned out people decide. You know, in the absence of a story about why this was happening, people were like, "What is this crap?" And it was, you know, it, it, I mean, it's not a failure in the sense, you know, there's wind, there's, you know, there's wind farms and solar farms and they're generating clean energy and there's no more coal in the grid. So it's a win, but it also like made, like it poisoned the well for the entire country. It made it harder to do wind energy in Alberta because people said, oh, you know, I hear in Ontario that went really badly and, and people got mad and, and it doesn't work or whatever, you know, to the point you talk about, like to come back around to myths, there was a legitimate belief. There's one wind turbine on the uh, uh, on the waterfront in Toronto on the old uh, Canadian National Exhibition grounds the, the X, uh, X grounds and anti-wind advocates in this one part of uh, you know up the coast of Lake Ontario uh, had convinced people that it didn't actually like it legitimately didn't work from an engineering point of view and that there was a small gas turbine like a little diesel generator gas turbine or whatever inside the wind windmill <laughs> that made it spin and that it was entirely a hoax perpetrated by I don't know George Soros and David Suzuki or whoever you know. <laughs> it was just, and that's that is the degree to which you can you can like that is how bad it can bite you if you mess up the messaging and you don't and you don't make this a story about the people who 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 the change is happening to. And the damaging effect is massive because you didn't just lose that town of angry people, angry old white people. Mm. I mean, you you lost that generation almost because of the internet, you know. Yeah, and their yeah. kids are also influenced. So you know, you you just just. 
a setback, which you would never have had before because of our our, our, our opportunities for communicating and whatnot, right? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy case. And I've, I've t- now, there was a whole bunch of other stuff going on outside of this, like the, that gets into the minutiae of, of Ontario politics. But uh, so it, was, it wasn't just that they messed up the messaging on the Green Energy Act, but the Green Energy Act got sucked into this larger story about government incompetence and, and wasteful spending and rising energy prices in part because the government was so bad at t- t- telling an, a, a, its own story and 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 not even telling its own story but inviting the people you know like there are lots of little you know uh like you know small farmers and and and, and the rest who are making really decent money off the leasing of their land but those people aren't you know at the microphone at the town hall meeting you know talking about wind yeah. turbine syndrome um uh, you know so hashtag wind cancer yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is absolutely got to be I, I i the cancer thing is just trump's weird brain but like the wind turbine syndrome that was a like a legitimate targeted disinformation campaign it started with one uh, uh family physician i think from upstate new york and she would l- like look at places where oh it looks like they're doing like so ontario it looks like they're doing a bunch of wind in ontario i'm going to i'm going to start having uh, you know, like a series of kind of conferences that look like professional conferences where basically they exist to plant this idea that there is this thing called wind turbine syndrome that, that if you live close to wind turbines it, it, it you know it makes you uh, it, you know gives you chronic all kinds of chronic uh, you know headaches and, yeah. and, and it makes it hard to sleep and eventually your your you know your immune system breaks down and it's all because of the oscillation of the turbine there's no yeah. <laughs> absolutely no no medical science but now the thing that people have pointed out to me though is a lot of the stuff she talks about is, are symptoms also of stress. And so the people in these, you know, if your community is suddenly you know, at each other's throats all the time, you're probably stressed out. And mm-hmm. so this person shows up and says, yeah, you have wind turbine syndrome. Like, yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. And But yet all of Denmark with uh, yeah, <laughs> 30% yeah. wind power, yeah, we yeah. seem to be doing okay, right? Or, yeah. Portugal, I mean, what's the penetration in Portugal might even be higher than that. Uh, no, we got the world record for wind. Yeah, yeah I think you're right, yeah. That's um, a portion of the grid anyway, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had like the. Well, every now and then it's it's more than a hundred percent. Like it's it's like the, the, on the right kind of day, Denmark will produce more wind than it can use. We had an entire month where we were a hundred percent wind. Like it was December, so it was winter. Good storms in the winter, so yeah, it was just a hundred percent. It was like a hundred thousand percent, whatever. But I mean, yeah, yeah. and uh, Portugal, yeah, they they ran. They have the world record for running on renewables for an entire month. That's probably what I'm thinking. Yeah, but yeah, it, it yeah. wasn't just wind; it was also hydro and other stuff, right? right Solar, right. yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> All right, dude, you're off to uh, Bornholm, the bright green island. I am, I am, speaking of wind energy, yeah. one, of the, one of the world's uh, most interesting and sophisticated uh, smart grid experiments, kind of a little glimpse of what uh, a future, and, and actually, it's a, not a bad place to end this, um, we're talking about like, like the, the, the things that are just better. We're not 100% there yet, but the fact that, you know, like basically, like an, an electric vehicle, which we can talk about why they're, you know, they're not... You know, you don't want to swap out every car on the road for an electric car. We want we want fewer cars in our cities and the rest of it. But if you are living somewhere where where you know vehicle is going to make sense, you have this battery that basically you know sits you know like most cars. I can't remember the figure, but it's ninety some percent of their working life they're not actually being operated. They're just parked somewhere. Parked, yeah. And this is on on Bornholm. This is part, has been part of this eco grid experiment. Is you've got wind energy tends to blow strongest at night when no one needs power. Store it in car batteries. 
drive the car to work and then plug it back in and start brokering energy back to the grid. And if that was the, you know, if this was sort of the value proposition, hey, you could, you know, you know, part of this, this, you know, climate change action that you need to take in your life is you're going to get an electric car and, you know, like, I'm getting off on a tangent here, but like, like Norway leads the world in electric car sales, not because Norwegians are so incredibly um, um, altruistic and, 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 and concerned about the environment. It's because the, there's a luxury tax on all other kinds of vehicles that doesn't apply. It's a huge, really steep luxury tax, and, and it doesn't apply on, on electric cars. Mm. So it makes electric cars affordable. Well, sure, I'll buy an electric car then. So you buy your affordable electric car because it's exempt from the climate tax, and you uh, you fuel up on the cheap. You're, you're you're juicing the battery up at night when when wind wind energy is cheap. And then you're plugging it back into the grid and then selling it back at a profit. Mm-hmm. That's a you know there's a there's an argument you could sell to a Republican. I think. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think we did pretty good considering we have a hangover. Not bad. I'm, I'm not. I would, yesterday would have been. A less lively conversation. Yeah, I know, right? I feel a bit better today. Uh, we're sitting outside in the spring sun. It's not so mm. cold. So, uh, yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks All right. for the time, brother. Happy to be here. All right. See you next time. Yeah. We're talking about climate change and fighting it and adapting our cities to it. We're talking about it more than ever before. The conversation has advanced. Absolutely. There is still, however, a disconnect between the narrative and positivity. I've often wondered what it would look like if... Urbanism had a profile on, let's say, Tinder. It would be a cool profile. Lots of positive imagery of urban redesign, tactical urbanism projects with friends, taking back the streets, having a barbecue, drinking some beers while doing it. It would be fun, cool, and sexy. If climate change had a profile on Tinder, man, it would be dismal. Dark and depressing and somber. Swipe left every time. I just think that urbanism and climate change should both swipe right on each other. Maybe even super-like. Meet up, get a bit drunk, go home and have some awkward sex, but then wake up in the morning and realize, hey, maybe we could work together. Let's hang out. Spinning climate change adaptation positively is crucial if we are serious about inspiring behavioral change. There are so few examples out there, but all the good ones are in cities. Tackling local issues. That's where we'll make a difference. Not with your national politician, but on your street, in your neighborhood, in your city and town. You've been listening to The Life-Sized City, my podcast about urbanism and urban change. As ever, this episode was produced thanks to red wine and coffee. The music was composed by Phil Creamer. Check out his website at www.hereonout.com. I'm Michael Koval-Anderson. Thanks for listening.